0: Chapter Two of *The Range Dwellers* by B. M. Bower. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The White Divide. If a phrenologist should undertake to read my head, he would undoubtedly find my love of home, if that is what it is called, a sharply defined welt. I know that I watched the lights of old Frisco slip behind me with as virulent a case of the deeps as often comes to a man when his digestion is good. It wasn't that I could not bear the thought of hardship. I've taken hunting trips up into the mountains more times than I can remember, and ate ungodly messes of my own invention, and waited waist deep in snow, and slept under the stars, and enjoyed nearly every minute. So it wasn't the hardships that I had every reason to expect that got me down. I think it was the feeling that Dad had turned me down. That I was in exile, and, in his eyes at least, disgraced. It was knowing that he thought me pretty poor truck, without giving me a chance to be anything better. I humped over the rail at the stern and watched the waves slap at us viciously, like an ill-tempered poodle, and felt for all the world like a dog that's been kicked out into the rain. Maybe the medicine was good for me, but it wasn't pleasant. It never occurred to me, that night, to wonder how Dad felt about it, but I've often thought of it since. I had a section to myself, so I could sulk undisturbed. Dad was not small, at any rate, and, though he hadn't let me have his car, he meant me to be decently comfortable. That first night I slept without a break. The second, I sat in the smoker till a most unrighteous hour, cultivating the acquaintance of a drummer for a rubber goods outfit. I thought that, seeing I was about to mingle with the working classes, I couldn't begin too soon to study them. He was a pretty good sort, too. The rubber-goods man left me at Seattle, and from there on I was at the tender mercies of my own thoughts and an elderly lady with a startlingly blonde daughter, who sat directly opposite me and was frankly disposed to friendliness. I had never given much time to the study of women, and so had no alternative but to answer questions and smile fatuously upon the blonde daughter, and wonder if I ought to warn the mother that clothes do not make the man— and that I was a black sheep and not a desirable acquaintance. Before I had quite settled that point, they left the train. I am afraid I am not distinctly a chivalrous person. I hummed the doxology after their retreating forms and retired into myself with a feeling that my own society is at times desirable and greatly to be chosen. After that I was shy, and nothing happened except on the last evening of the trip. I gave up my sole remaining five dollars in the diner, and walked out whistling softly. I was utterly and unequivocally strapped. I went into the smoker to think it over. I knew I had started out with a hundred or so, and that I had considered that sufficient to see me through. Plainly, it was not sufficient, but it is a fact that I looked upon it as a joke, and went to sleep grinning idiotically at the thought of me, Ellis Carlton, here to almost as many millions as I was years old, without the price of a breakfast in his pocket. It seemed novel and interesting, and I rather enjoyed the situation. I wasn't hungry then. Osage, Montana, failed to rouse any enthusiasm in me when I saw the place next day, except that it offered possibilities in the way of eating. At least, I fancied it did, until I stepped down upon the narrow platform and looked about me it was two o'clock in the afternoon and i had fasted since dinner the evening before i was not happy i began to see where i might have economized a bit and so have gone on eating regularly to the end of the journey i reflected that stewed terrapin for instance might possibly be considered an extravagance under the circumstances and a fellow sentenced to honest toil and exiled to the wilderness should not it seemed to me then cause his table to be sprinkled quite so liberally as i had done with tall glasses nor need he tip the porter quite so often or so generously a dollar looked bigger to me just then than a wheel of the yellow peril i began to feel unkindly toward the porter he had looked so abominably well-fed and sleek and he had tips that i would be glad to feel in my own pocket again I stood alone upon the platform and gazed wistfully after the retreating train. Many people have done that before me, if one may believe those who write novels, and for once in my life I felt a bond of sympathy between us. It's safe betting I did more solid thinking on frenzied finance in the five minutes I stood there watching that train slid off beyond the skyline than I'd done in all my life before. I'd heard, of course, about fellows getting right down to cases, but I'd never personally experienced the sensation. I'd always had money, or if I hadn't, I knew where to go. And Dad had caught me when I'd all but overdrawn my account at the bank. I was always doing that, for Dad paid the bills. That last night with Barney and hadn't been my night to win, and I'd dropped quite a lot there. And, you what's the use? I was broke, all right enough and I was hungry enough to eat the proverbial crust. It seemed to me it might be a good idea to hunt up the gentleman named Perry Potter, whom Dad called his foreman. I turned around and caught a tall, brown-faced native studying my back with grave interest. He didn't blush when I looked him in the eye, but smiled a tired smile and said he reckoned I was the chap he'd been sent to meet. There was no welcome in his voice, I noticed. I looked him over critically. "'Are you the gentleman with the alliterative cognomen?" I asked him airily, hoping he would be puzzled. He was not, evidently. "'Perry Potter, he's at the ranch.' He was damnably tolerant, and I said nothing. I hate to make the same sort of fool of myself twice. So when he proposed that we hit the trail, I followed meekly in his wake— He did not offer to take my suitcase, and I was about to remind him of that oversight when it occurred to me that, possibly, he was not a servant. He certainly didn't act like one. I carried my own suitcase, which was, I have thought since, the only wise move I had made since I left home. A strong but unsightly spring wagon with mud six inches deep on the wheels seemed the goal, and we trailed out to it picking up layers of soil as we went the ground did not look muddy but it was i have since learned that that particular phase of nature's hypocrisy is called Dobie. i don't admire it myself i stopped by the wagon and scraped my shoes on the cleanest spoke i could find and swore my guide untied the horses gathered up the reins and sought a spoke on his side of the wagon he looked across at me with a gleam of humanity in his eyes, the first I'd seen there. It sure beats hell the way it hangs on, he remarked, and from that minute I liked him. It was a first crumb of sympathy that had fallen to me for days, and you can bet I appreciated it. We got in, and he pulled a blanket over our knees and picked up the whip. It wasn't a stylish turnout. I had seen farmers driving along the railroad track in rigs like it and I was surprised at Dad for keeping such a layout. Fact is, I didn't think much of Dad, anyway, about that time. "'How far is it to the Bay State Ranch?' I asked. "'140-mile airline,' said he casually. "'The train was late, so I reckon we better stop over till morning. "'There's a town over the hill, and a hotel that beats nothing a long way.' A hundred and forty miles from the station, airline sounded to me like a pretty stiff proposition to go up against. Also, how was a fellow going to put up at a hotel when he hadn't the coin? Would my mysterious guide be shocked to learn that John A. Carlton's son and heir had landed in a strange land without two bits to his name? Jerusalem, I couldn't have paid streetcar fare downtown. I couldn't even have bought a paper on the street. While I was remembering all the things a millionaire's son can't do if he happens to be without a nickel in his pocket, we pulled up before a place that, for the sake of propriety, I'm willing to call a hotel. At the time, I remember, I had another name for it. In case I might get lost in this strange city, I said to my companion as I jumped out, I'd like to know what people call you when they're in a good humor. He grinned down at me. Frosty Miller would hit me all right, he informed me, and drove off somewhere down the street. So I went in and asked for a room, and got it. This sounds sordid, I know, but the truth must be told, though the artistic sense be shocked. Barred from the track as I was, sent out to grass in disgrace while the little old world kept moving without me to help push my mind passed up all the things i might naturally be supposed to dwell upon and stuck to three little no-account grievances that i hate to tell about now they look small for a fact now that they're away out of sight almost in the past but they were quite big enough at the time to give me a bad hour or two the biggest one was the state of my appetite Next, and not more than a nose behind, was the state of my pockets. And the last was, had Rankin packed the gray tweed trousers that I had a liking for, or had he not? I tried to remember whether I had spoken to him about them, and I sat down on the edge of the bed in that little box of a room, took my head between my fists, and called Rankin several names he sometimes deserved and had frequently heard from my lips. I'd have given a good deal to have Rankin at my elbow just then. They were not in the suitcase, or if they were, I had not run across them. Rankin had a way of stowing things away so that even he had to do some tall searching, and he had another way of filling up my suitcase with truck I would no immediate use for. I yanked the case toward me, unlocked it, and turned it out on the bed, just to prove Rankin's general incapacity as a valet to a fastidious fellow like me. There was the suit I had worn on that memorable excursion to the cliff house. I had told Rankin to pitch it into the street, for I had discovered Teddy Van Grieve in one almost exactly like it, and—hello—Rankin had certainly overlooked a bet. I never caught him at it before, that's certain— He had a way of coming to my left elbow, and in a particularly virtuous tone, calling my attention to the fact that I had left several loose bills in my pockets. Rankin was that honest. I often told him he would land behind the bars as an embezzler some day. But Rankin had done it this time, for fair. Tucked away in the pocket of a waistcoat was money. Real, legal, lawful tender. M-O-N-E-Y. I don't suppose the time will ever come when it will look as good to me as it did right then. I held those banknotes—there were two of them, double X's—to my face and sniffed them like I would never seen the like before and never expected to again. And the funny part was that I forgot all about wanting the gray trousers, and all about the faults of Rankin. My feet were on bottom again, and my head on top. I marched downstairs, whistling with my hands in my pockets and my chin in the air, and told the landlord to serve dinner an hour earlier than usual, and to make it a good one. He looked at me with a curious mixture of wonder and amusement. "'Dinner,' he drawled calmly, "'has been over for three hours. But I guess we can give you some supper any time after five. I he looked upon me as the rankest kind of tenderfoot. I calculated the time of my torture till I might, without embarrassing explanations, partake of a much-needed repast, and went to the door. Waiting was never my long suit, and I had thoughts of getting outside and taking a look around. At the second step, I changed my mind. There was that deceptive mud to reckon with. So from the doorway I surveyed all of Montana that lay between me and the skyline, and decided that my bets would remain on California. The sky was a dull slate, tumbled into what looked like rain clouds, and depressing to the eye. The land was a dull yellowish-brown, with a purple line of hills off to the south, and with untidy snowdrifts crouching in the hollows. That was all, so far as I could see and if dullness and an unpeopled wilderness make for the reformation of man, it struck me that I was in a fair way to become a saint if I stayed here long. I had heard the cattle range called picturesque. I couldn't see the joke. Frosty Miller sat opposite me at table when, in the course of human events, I ate again, and the way I made the biscuit and ham and boiled potatoes vanish filled him with astonishment if one may judge a man's feelings by the size of his eyes. I told him that the ozone of the plains had given me an appetite, and he did not contradict me. He looked at my plate and then smiled at his own and said nothing, which was polite of him. Did you ever skip two meals and try to make it up on the third? I asked him when we went out, and he said, Sure, and rolled a cigarette. In those first hours of our acquaintance, Frosty was not what I'd call loquacious that night i took out the letter addressed to one perry potter which dad had given me and which i had not had time to seal in his presence and read it cold-bloodedly i don't do such things as a rule but i was getting a suspicion that i was being queered that i'd got to start my exile under a handicap of the contempt of the natives if dad had stacked the deck on me i wanted to know it but i misjudged him or perhaps he knew I'd read it. All he had written wouldn't hurt the reputation of anyone. It was, The bearer, Ellis H. Carlton, is my son. He will probably be with you for some time, and will not try to assume any authority or usurp your position as foreman and overseer. You will treat him as you do the other boys, and if he wants to work, pay him the same wages, if he earns them. It wasn't exactly throwing flowers in the path my young feet should tread, but it might have been worse. At least he did not give Perry Potter his unbiased opinion of me, and it left me with a free hand to warp their judgment somewhat in my favor. But if he wants to work, pay him the same wages. If he earns them, whew! I might have saved him the trouble of writing that, if I had only known it. Dad could go too far in this thing. I told myself chestily. I had come, seeing that he insisted upon it, but I'd be damned if I'd work for any man with a circus poster name and have him lord it over me. I hadn't been brought up to appreciate that kind of joke. I meant to earn my living, but I did not mean to get out and slave for Perry Potter. There must be something respectable for a man to do in this country besides ranch work. In the morning we started off with my trunks in the wagon toward the line of Purple Hills in the south. Frosty Miller told me, when I asked him, that they were forty-eight miles away, that they marked the Missouri River, and that we would stop there overnight. That, if I remember, was about the extent of our conversation that day. We smoked cigarettes. Frosty Miller made his, one by one, as he needed them. I rather suspect our thoughts were a good many miles apart, though our shoulders touched. When you think of it, people may rub elbows and still have an ocean or two between them. I don't know where Frosty was, all through that long day's ride. For me, I was back in little old Frisco, with Barney McTeague and the rest of the crowd, and part of the time, I know, I was telling Dad what a mess he'd made of bringing up his only son— That night, we slept in a shack at the river. Pochette Crossing was the name it answered to, and shared the same bed. It was not remarkable for its comfort, that bed. I think the mattress was stuffed with potatoes. It felt that way. Next morning, we were off again, over the same bare-brown, unpeopled wilderness. Once we saw a badger zigzagging along the side hill, and Frosty whipped out a big revolver, one of those... Colt forty five, I suppose, and shot it. He said in extenuation that they play the very devil with the range, digging holes for cowpunchers to break their necks over. I was surprised at Frosty. There he had been armed all the time, and I never guessed it. Even when we went to bed the night before, I had not glimpsed a weapon. Clearly, he could not be a cowboy, I reflected, else he would have worn a cartridge belt sagging picturesquely down over one hip, and his gun dangling from it. He put the gun away, and I don't know where. Somewhere out of sight it went, and Frosty turned off the trail and went driving wild across the prairie. I asked him why, and he said, Shortcut! Then a wind crept out of the north, and with it the snow. We were climbing low ridges and dodging into hollows, and when the snow spread a white veil over the land... I looked at Frosty out of the tail of my eye, wondering if he did not wish he had kept to the road—trail, it is called—in the rangeland. If he did, he certainly kept it to himself. He went on climbing hills and setting the brake at the top to slide into a hollow, and his face kept its inscrutable calm. Whatever he thought was beyond guessing at. When he had watered the horses at a little creek that was already skimmed with ice— and unwrapped a package of sandwiches on his knee and offered me one i broke loose silence may be golden but even old king midas got too big a dose of gold once upon a time if one may believe tradition i ain't to butt into a man's meditation i said looking him straight in the eye but there's a limit to everything and you've played right up to it you've had time my friend to remember all your sins and plan enough more to keep you puzzling the allotted span. You've been given an opportunity to reconstruct the universe and breed a new philosophy of life. For heaven's sake, say something! Frosty eyed me for a minute, and the muscles at the corners of his mouth twitched. Sure, he responded cheerfully. I'm something like you. I hate to break into a man's meditations. It looks like snow. Do you think it's going to storm? I retorted in the same tone. It had been snowing great guns for the last three hours. We both laughed, and Frosty and told me a lot about Bay State Ranch and the country around it. Part of the information was an eye-opener. I wish I had known it when Dad was handing out the roast to me i rather think I could have made him cry enough. I tagged the information and laid it away for future reference. As I got the country mapped out in my mind, we were in a huge capital H. The eastern line, toward which we were angling, was a river they call the Midas, though I'll never tell you why, unless it's a term ironical. The western line is another river, the Joliet, and the crossbar is a range of hills, they might almost be called mountains which i had been facing all that morning till the snow came between and shut them off white divide it is called and we were creeping around the end between them and the midas it seemed queer that there was no way of crossing for the bay state lies almost in a direct line south from osage frosty told me and the country we were traversing was rough as a white divide could be and i said so to frosty "'Right here is where I got my first jolt. "'There's a fine pass cut through White Divide by old Mama Nature,' Frosty said in the same sort of tone a man takes when he could say a lot more but refrains. "'Then why in heaven's name don't you travel it?' "'Cause it isn't healthy for ragged H-folks to travel that way,' he said in the same eloquent tone. "'Who are the ragged H-folks, and what's the matter with them?' I wanted to know." for I smelled a mystery. He looked at me sidelong. "'If you didn't look just like the old man,' he said, "'I think you was a fake. The Ragged H is the brand your ranch is known by—the Bay State outfit—and it isn't healthy to travel King's Highway, cause there's a large-sized feud between your father and old King. How does it happen you ain't wise to the family history?' Dad never unbosomed himself to me, that's why, I told him. He has labored for twenty-five years under the impression that I was a kid just able to toddle along. He didn't think he needed to tell me things. I know we've got a place called the Bay State Ranch somewhere in this part of the world, and I have reason to think I'm headed for it. That's about the extent of my knowledge of the interest here. I never heard of the White Divide before, or of this particular king. "'I'm thirsting for information.' "'Well, it strikes me you got it coming,' said Frosty. "'I always had your father sized up as being close-mouthed, "'but I didn't think he'd make such a thorough job of it as all that. "'Old King has sure got it in for the Ragged H, "'or Bay State, if you'd rather call us that. "'And the Ragged H boys don't sit up nights "'thinking kind and loving thoughts about him either.' Thirty years ago, your father and old King started jangling over water rights, and I guess they burned powder plenty. King goes lame to this day from a bullet your old man planted in his left leg. I dropped the flag and started him off again. It's news to me, I put in, and you can't tell me too much about it. Well, he said, your old man was in the right of it. He owns all the land along Honey Creek, right up to White Divide, where it heads. Of course, he overlooked a bet there. He should have got a cinch on that pass, and on the head of the creek. But he let her slide, and the first he knew Old King had come in and staked a claim and built him a shack right in our end of the pass, and camped down to stay. "'Your dad wasn't joyful.' The Bay State had used that pass to trail herds through and as the easiest and shortest trail to the railroad. And then Old King takes it up, strings a five-wire fence across at both ends of his place, and warns us off. I've heard Potter tell what warm times there were. Your father stayed right here and had it out with him. The Bay State was all he had then, and he ran it himself. Perry Potter worked for him and knows all about it. "'Neither old King nor your dad was married, "'and it's a wonder they didn't kill each other off. "'Potter says they sure tried. "'The time King got it in the leg, "'your father and his punchers were coming home from a breed dance, "'and they were feeling pretty nifty, I guess. "'Potter told me they started out with six bottles, "'and when they got to Wipe Divide, "'there wasn't enough left to talk about. "'They cut King's fence at the north end and went right through.' hell-bent for election king and his men boiled out and they mixed good and plenty your father went home with a hole in his shoulder and old king had one in his leg to match and since then it's been war they tried to fight it out in court and king got the best of it there then they got married and kind of cooled off and pretty soon they both got so much stuff to look after that they didn't have much time to take pot shots at each other and now we're enjoying what you might call armed peace. We go round about 60 miles, and King's Highway is bad medicine. King owns the stage line from Osage to Laurel, where the Bay State gets its mail, and he owns Kenmore, a mining camp in the west half of White Divide. We can go round by Kenmore if we want to, but King's Highway? Nit. I chuckled to myself to think all the things I could twit Dad about if ever he went after me again. It struck me that I hadn't been a circumstance so far to what Dad must have been in his youth. At my worst, I've never shot a man. End of chapter 2 Recording by Tom Penn